listeners, and welcome to the first episode of The Voice of La Riva. Today, we are going to embark on an exciting journey, delving deep behind the scenes into the lives of three brilliant fintech founders who are revolutionizing the way Islamic finance is being offered today and the way we interact with our money. I'm joined by Areeb Siddiqui, the driving force behind Kestrel, Raza, the trailblazing founder of FIDA, and virtually we are joined by Shahid Munir, the visionary behind the Minted app. So without further ado, I'm going to get started and I'd love it if you could each introduce yourselves. I'll start with you, Raza. Yeah, hi. So my name is Reza Ola. I'm the CEO and founder of Fiverr. Fiverr is a business, is a business providing partnership-based finance and savings solutions uh, powered by tech. So uh, effectively positioning ourselves as an alternative ethical provider of banking services. We provide savings accounts, we provide home finance, and we've got uh, several other financial products in the pipeline too. Super exciting. And we're, we're going to go deeper into all the, the products that by the offer. And Arif, yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, hey, Aslam alaikum, everyone. My name is Arif Siddiqui. I'm the founder and the CEO of Kestrel, the Muslim money app. We are a service that helps Muslims who would like to grow their wealth without having to compromise on their beliefs, on user experience, or price, whatever that may be. We do that in two ways. We have a consumer app here in the UK, which helps Muslims with budgeting, saving, investment solutions. And we also have a software as a service business for any financial institution that would like to better serve their customers. That's super exciting. And Walaikum Asalaam. Now, Shahid, if you could introduce yourself and your company, companies. Sure. Yep. Uh, Shahid Munir here. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Minted and Minted Connect. Uh, Minted is a, a B2C app in the UK and Turkey, which allows um, anyone to uh, on board and buy physical gold and silver uh, and be able to save in physical gold and silver on a regular basis. Uh, Minted Connect is um, a gold as a service platform for other financial institutions such as banks and digital banks um, that allows them to then offer gold uh, to their customers. That's great. Now, building a fintech is not an easy task, nor is it for the faint of heart. There are challenges along the way, triumphs, and also obstacles. So today we're really going to go deep with these founders to understand the journey that they have embarked on. We're going to talk about the pivotal moments in the lives of Raza, Arib, and Shahid, and what led them to starting the companies that they've started up today. Now, Raza, I'm going to start with you because FIDA has been around for seven years, but what was that? pivotal moment in your life where you thought, this is what I want to do? Yeah, so just a bit of background. I'm an actuary by background. So uh, for those who don't know what that is, you're not alone. Uh, actuaries are complex statistical models, effectively. So I worked in the London financial markets all my life, the likes of PwC, Bank of England, Lloyds of London. Um, now, I was uh, very, very happy in that role, in that lifestyle, earning more money than I needed. I was very, very fortunate. And actually, I had no reason to leave. It was back end of 2016 when I went to Hajj, and I had a pretty life-changing experience. People say you have a life-changing experience in Hajj, but I think you have to experience it to appreciate what that means. 
So I remember standing on Arafa, hands raised to the sky, uh, effectively having a conversation saying, Ya Allah, you've given me everything. Health, wealth, iman, intellect, anything I could ask for. Not to mention this actuarial skill set, which not that many people on earth possess. So what will I say to you when you ask me what I did with it? And that was the question that I kept repeating. I kept saying it again and again, Ya Allah, what am I going to say to you? Ya Allah, what am I going to say to you? What am I going to say to you? And I realized that I was too embarrassed to actually stand in front of God on that day and say I had a great job and I bought a nice car and I bought a nice house and I took my family on holidays and that's all I did with the countless blessings that Allah has bestowed upon me. So I actually at that point decided I needed to do something uh, just to be able to say Allah I tried. Maybe that is enough. Uh, even if I don't succeed, maybe just be able to say I tried. So I actually very grudgingly gave up my job. And I, I quite often say I think one advantage I have is that when I became an entrepreneur, I didn't want to do it. I felt I had a responsibility to do it. Uh, and hopefully that keeps me a bit grounded in, in, in my approach. So I actually I got back from Hajj. I ended my role at the Bank of England where I was at the time. And I immediately started setting up the business that we have today. MashaAllah. Wow. For our viewers who are not Muslims or who do not really know much about Islam, Hajj is a pilgrimage. It's a pilgrimage that is mandatory on all able and fit Muslims to perform once in their life. And the purpose is to connect to God, to connect to the reason why we are here, why we have been born. And the day of Arafah is one of the days of the pilgrimage where we all gather every pilgrim from around the world and there are thousands. And we raise our hands and we pray to God for what we want. But most importantly, we pray for forgiveness. And it's, it's beautiful, Reza, how you have that spiritual moment. I'll never forget it. <laughs> no doubt. And Arif. Yeah. What was the moment for you? Uh, it was sort of a series of moments that, that led me to the, that point. I was working as a management consultant. I started out at Deloitte on a graduate scheme. Then I moved to a little company called Alpha. And I'd always specialized in working with banks and wealth managers, helping them to develop fintech strategies. Um, but I'd become really disillusioned with the industry, partly because you know I was sort of helping to build solutions that I myself could not use as a Muslim the need to avoid interest and other activities deemed unethical meant that conventional investment products and savings products were never really on the table for me. So it was weird to work on all these ama amazing solutions for the likes of Nutmeg and UBS and people like that and, and just feel like people that I know and people like myself, including myself, can never benefit from this. Um, that plus the industry as a whole, when you're working in and around banking and wealth management, there's a big drinking culture. There's a lot of things that make you feel like you're not quite an insider. And it was Ramadan in 2018. And I was once again working in the office till like 11, 12 at night. I'd, met, I'd missed the Ramadan prayers, the Rawi once again. I had broken fast in the top of this beautiful building. And I was just like, I think I've had enough of this whole industry. So I decided to take a year out. Not sure what I was going to do. I did two things actually. Um, Interestingly, I went on Hajj as well. <laughs> so I went and performed pilgrimage for the first time, made similar similar doors. It was really emotional hearing that story because it was a very similar spot where I was in. I was there on the day of Arafah, uh, praying just, you know, what, what should I be doing with my life? 
right? This can't be it. There should be something else I should be doing. And the second thing I did was I applied to do an MBA. I, I didn't know where or when. I just did the exams and applied to a few places. Managed to get into Cambridge and went there. Um, so that was really cool. Really nice experience being there at this university, but still had no direct, no idea where I was going to go. And that's where I met my now co-founder, Dying Tremizi, who was my really good friend there at the time. And we would pray together, go Friday prayers, we'd eat together. And then he saw me one day paying for lunch with a non-Islamic banker. And he was like, what, why are you using Barclays? Why don't you have an Islamic bank? There are Islamic banks here in the UK. And Dying is from Malaysia. In Malaysia, Islamic banking is pretty much the norm. Not just that, but Dying had worked in Islamic banking for the Central Bank of Malaysia his whole life. So he asked me that question and I, I kind of stuttered and I couldn't really answer him properly aside from saying, they don't really have a great reputation here. I honestly don't know anyone who's using it aside from my brother, shout out to Ali, because he, he's never used a different bank in his life aside from Orion Bank and all the problems that have come, come with that, unfortunately. Um, so we decided, hey, why don't we put our heads together and use our final semester project to find out if I was alone in this problem. So we, we spent that summer interviewing 1,500 Muslims around the country from London to all the way to Edinburgh, asking them a few questions like, do you care about Islamic finance? Does it even matter to you? If you do, why aren't you using these solutions? Overwhelmingly, 95% of people said they did care. They wanted to avoid riba. They wanted to avoid interest. They knew how serious it was. But fewer than 5%, it was more like 3%, were actually using existing Islamic solutions today, whether it was a bank or a wealth management solution. When asked why, what the major barriers were, they were threefold. Number one, poor customer service. Number two, really poor user experience. They didn't really have a working app or website. Uh, it was hard to understand. And the final thing was price. Typically, and, and you know, Razak can speak to this a lot, a, uh, uh, an Islamic product or home finance product is two, two and a half times more expensive than uh, a conventional one. So it's, um, uh, it was really off-putting to a lot of people. Ultimately, people didn't trust it. And that's where we thought, okay, there's something here. We could do something here. So long story short, we managed to raise a bit of money, leave our jobs behind and started Castrol. That's where I began. Super exciting. Such a risk as well that you took at that point. Yeah. I think a lot of people can resonate with those feelings of frustration and disillusionment with the current banking system, especially when you work in it. Yeah. Now, Shahid, you um, have some banking experience, but you are also a serial entrepreneur. You've established many companies before you actually set about with the Minted app. What was it for you? What was the crossroads or what was the inspiration that led you to want to start and uh, and join your other co-founders to start the Minted app. Sure. So, um, yeah, just a bit of background. Um, so, yeah, as you rightly said, I began in investment banking straight out of university as an analyst. Um, after a couple of years, I, I realized, uh, you know, pretty much similar to Arif, that, that, that life was not for me. Um, so I, I, I'd always had an inclination towards technology. Um, so it was always a bit of a, a techie and a geek at heart. Um, so I, I moved back um, from London to actually my hometown uh, just near Birmingham um, and I founded a technology company which was in the telecom sector um, at the time. So voice over IP had just emerged um, around at that time and um, yeah, so that kind of led me out of the financial world um, and I was, in, I was in tech and software for the next six to seven years um, and it was only after I exited that company um, 
I had seen that financial technology had really, really taken off, and and you know things were beginning to change. Um, and you know you had the emergence of um, digital banks like Monzo, Revolut, Starlink. So, so you know the industry was it was really changing in terms of tech from a technology perspective. Um, so I actually went back to um, I did a course at, at Oxford Uni, uh, the fintech course, uh, and that really allowed me to get a bit of a background on fintech itself. Um, and it re and then at that point it was um, I really wanted to do something in fintech because it allowed me to bridge my background and education in banking and finance uh, and technology itself. Um, but yeah, then then really it was deciding on well what could be the um, the, the proposition moving forward. Uh, and in, interestingly, it's when um, I had um, I met up my other co-founders who were also my friends, and we came across uh, a, a, a hadith from the Prophet um, and it was, uh, A time is certainly coming over mankind in which there will be nothing which will be of use save a dinar and a dirham, and and it was just so compelling to us that you know um, gold and silver. Even though it's been in our culture for generations, um, but our our generation is pretty much not very affiliated with, with gold and silver. We always just saw our parents buy it and stash it away and, and buy it for gold um, and, and save it for the next next child's wedding. Um, but but as an asset class, it was something which was not reachable and, and almost boring. Um, so we tried to then, um, you know, in essence, that was that was our we thought, okay, look, gold is something which has not been disrupted in a long time from a technology perspective. As we've seen in, you know, stocks and shares, you had Robin Hood emerge. So, so a lot of the industries in and, and the loans industry, you know, that that became all um, digitalized. But gold and silver had still not. That's no one, no one had taken on that challenge. It was a very much uh, an e-commerce journey where you go on a website, you know, you order a bar, and that's as far as digital. Uh, as, as digital as it went, to be honest, um, and and that's the reason why we then you know decided let's let's try and find a way that we can make gold fractional. Um, we can allow people with smaller budgets to start buying gold, uh, and and then the, obviously continue the journey of of uh, where Mint is today. Thank you, Shaya. Did I? I don't know if I caught what you said, but is it fashionable? Make gold fashionable. Is that what you said? Um, oh, wow. I'm thinking of gold being fashionable. I was going to say it is. Absolutely. But thank you. Thank you all for sharing your journeys. In the dynamic and fast-paced world of startups, founders need to be nimble. They need to be flexible because they have a delicate dance between competition and collaboration. Now, Shahid, I read in an interview that you once said, Competition keeps us on our toes. It constantly pushes the boundaries of innovation. So it's safe to say that you do not shy away from challenges, but I want to take a look at the other side of the coin. So let's, you know, pull the curtains back. Tell us about moments where competition has actually created friction for you and how have you worked around that? Um, I, I guess from a... Um, proposition perspective, what we do in the UK is fairly unique. Um, however, when we entered more matured markets such as Turkey, um, I, I guess that's where you know the task became um, yeah, a lot more difficult. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's kind of where we were 
we were up against because uh, as a mature market, gold and silver is prevalent um, in in the Turkish culture, um, in their economy. Uh, they you know they're used to buying gold and silver and saving in gold and silver. So there were a huge amount of solutions, digital solutions around. Um, I guess the only way that we overcome that is by utilizing our learnings from within the UK. Um, so, you know, coming into Turkey as a UK company, we were not only better prepared from a, a regulatory perspective, because um, we have a, you know, a great framework in the UK to, to go off, um, but also in terms of uh, our compliance. Um, so we came obviously with all the compliance measures. So those kind of two things help us um, set us apart and create that trust factor in what was already a, a, you know, a hugely uh, saturated. Thank you. And I've also been reading your interviews and you once said competition fuels a startup's engine. It allows for the refinement of products and services. So tell us how you've had experiences with collaborations with the current Kestrel app yeah. and what's, what's in the future. So, I mean, for us, we're all about collaboration. We see a massive Islamic fintech ecosystem. We've seen people enter that market and unfortunately people exit that market as well, as is natural uh, with any competitive landscape. And it does help us to get better. But I really think that end game for Islamic finance, fintech is all of us working together. We have an ecosystem where we've had large Islamic banks who have capital. Uh, they have the means to be able to do things, but their technology is lacking. And as Islamic fintechs, our specialty is is uh, technology and distribution and outreach and maybe even trust. So the thing that we've lacked is capital, which is where the Islamic banks come in. So that's been working very well for us in Malaysia and in the UAE, where we have collaborated with banks over there in exactly that way, offering our technology developed here in the UK with uh, an amazing regulator, with great examples like Monzo and Starling of what good looks like, and taking it over to new parts of the world where they've never seen that before where their technology is maybe five years behind where we are here in the UK. So that's where I see it going, us collaborating, and we'd love to collaborate with more and more fintechs in this space. Um, I think competition, I, I think as fintechs, maybe we were guilty of being a little bit wary of each other, especially in the early days. Back in 2020, when we were launching, there were many other play players around, people trying to be like the, uh, the Muslim version of Monzo. That was very popular at the time with the likes of Rizk and Myamid. Um, so it, it got, it felt a little cutthroat and everyone was kind of hiding their, their homework from, from everyone else. There were, there was even a case of a, a startup masquerading as a VC, um, that collected all of our pitch decks. And then a month later announced that they were launching their own, their own Islamic FinTech, which really put everyone on edge. Um, I know there are still some people who are, um, have the policy of it's going to be us and nobody else, but I really don't think that's going to work out well uh, for us and ultimately for the Ummah in general. I think we need to work together. Absolutely. It's a good thing we do not name and shame on this show. That, that little VC masquerading company, your secret is safe with us. Now, Reza, I haven't come across any interview clips where you've spoken about competition and collaboration, but this is your opportunity. What do you think? Well, in, in terms of, you know, home finance, what were the kind of competitors you faced and were they willing to collaborate? So I think the first thing to say is the market 
the size of the market is humongous, right? Uh, the mortgage market in the UK is worth something like 11 trillion pounds. That's a lot of zeros. You are literally get tired writing that number of zeros out. Mm -hmm. So the market is far too big for any one entity to try and dominate. And we can see that just in the traditional market. You know, the banking giants have operated shoulder to shoulder for centuries, and they all do very, very well to it. So for me, what I like to say to my team quite often is FIDO is about sparking the change. Uh, if we're the only ones doing this business model in five years' time, 10 years' time, whatever, it doesn't matter if we're a unicorn at that point. We have failed miserably because our mission is to show the world that there is a better way of providing banking-type services um, powered by ethics, powered by partnership, but without that being detrimental to the underlying principle of making money as a business. So I, I don't uh, have uh, any reason to not want to collaborate with others. When I see others in the market bringing similar products, I'm always the first to offer support and say, look, we've been there, we've done it, let us know if there's anything to help. Uh, and I actually love to see more and more entrants coming to the market. I'm seeing similar providers come to market in other parts of the world. There's a few similar providers in the UK and we're on very good terms with them. We have slightly different products, so I think we appeal to different cohorts mm -hmm. of customers, and that's very, very healthy. That's exactly what the market needs. Yes. So for me, I echo very much what Arib said. Uh, I think collaboration is definitely the way forward. The market is too big for one for one entity to dominate, and we'll get much, much further working together than against each other. And, and you see that in the Islamic banks, for example. They have a very healthy, uh, competitive friendship. Yeah. So they all collaborate. You see this very much in the UAE as well. Mm. All the major Islamic banks in the UAE, they literally have a panel where they all come together and they share ideas on a regular basis. The CEOs all get together and share ideas on a regular basis. And that is a healthy landscape for growing the Islamic economy. And I very much subscribe to it. Can, can I just um, admit something? So yes. when we first started uh, Kestrel, when we're in our research phase, we uh, we were looking at fiber, primary finance, as it was known at the time. And there was an interview you guys did with uh, Ibrahim, Islamic finance gurus. Uh, I remember listening to that interview and and going to dying and being like, let's do this model. We can just take it. right? <laughs> let's do it. Let's go ahead and we'll become like primary finance's biggest competitor. <laughs> and then we did like the financial modeling and we figured it out. And we're like, okay, it's going to take a lot of capital to scale this like massive amounts of capital. Let's go back to the drawing board and figure something else out. But you really did inspire us in the early days. And, and yeah. believe me, I would have helped you. I would have told us. <laughs> we can do that then. Now let's work together. Because there's you guys way home and zero down over in the US. Okay. Like Silicon Valley. And there's a few other people. Um, yeah, all trying a similar kind of. Kind yeah, of yeah. I mean, when I said earlier that I did this grudgingly, I absolutely meant that. When I first started, primary finance as we were originally called. My full intention was I'm going to start this journey. If someone else comes along and they can do it better, I can't wait to hand over the reins and go back to being an actuary. I was making much more money than I, than I am now. So if you'd come to me, I might have handed the reins over to you. You know what's going to happen. Oh, well. That was a great story. Thank you for being brave and so honest. <laughs> Especially when we were in the FIDA headquarters today. Yeah, I'll get jumped by a whole team. <laughs>
I mean, having said that, I would never go back now. Now this is my life's work, my passion. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. But that was definitely my mindset when I was starting from this journey. Fantastic. Now, strategies allow for the creation of unique value propositions to clients and customers. Now, as the financial services landscape changes, consumer needs also change. So it's really vital to have a compelling product proposition and value proposition for your target customer base. A marketing guru, Philip Kotler, uses the phrase differentiate or die to essentially describe the essence of having strategies that do differentiate one company from another. Now, I'm interested to know how you guys bring about those differentiation strategies with the products and services you offer. So not to be a replica or a copycat of yeah. another company. I'm going to start with you, Vesa. Yeah, so Areed mentioned earlier on in the interview uh, about the fact that Islamic products, particularly when it comes to finance, tend to cost a lot more than conventional products. One thing I'm extremely proud of is that we've managed to break that trend. Uh, we've managed to completely kill what we sometimes affectionately refer to as the Muslim premium, where it costs more to be Muslim. So uh, whereas at the time of recording, the Islamic banks are currently charging 7 to 8%. Uh, conventional bank mortgages are currently charging somewhere between 5 and 7%. We are actually able to offer our services, uh, in some instances, as low as 3.5% equivalent, so significantly cheaper than the rest of the market. The reason we're able to do that is because of uh, the way in which we raise capital. And this is how we really differentiate ourselves from other similar providers in the market. So most providers uh, providing shared ownership type and finance they will be partnered up with a property fund uh, they will take on a combination of debt and equity capital and they'll have to provide uh, a return that satiates or, or sort of um, a return that is sufficient for that type of investor now property funds generally want something approaching double digits in terms of returns what we do is different rather than partnering up with a property fund we operate more like a bank and so, as I mentioned, we have savings accounts products as well as financing homes. So the money that we take into our savings accounts is the money that we actually use for funding homes. Now, what that allows us to do is provide a genuine partnership-based shared ownership type product uh, with all the flexibility that comes with that. Uh, so just, for example, rather than our customers being in debt for the rest of their mm -hmm. lives and having to pay, uh, pay for that debt for the rest of their lives, the word mortgage, by the way, means death grip, it's from Latin. Um, with our uh, service, customers are in partnership with us. So they don't owe us anything. If they want to just rent from us, they can rent from us. If they want to purchase our shares from us, they can do that. They have enormous flexibility. That's one of the key advantages of a partnership. Now, what that means is we can provide that flexibility, that service, but at a similar price point to banks because we are raising capital in a similar way to banks. We have savings accounts, very similar to bank savings accounts. They're not deposit accounts, they're investment accounts, but they operate in a very similar kind of way. And our cost of capital there is significantly lower than if we were to partner up with a property fund. And as a result of that, because our cost of raising capital is lower, we can pass those savings on to our customers and actually offer finance at a significantly lower rate. Now that 3.5% I mentioned, that's 
clearly the you know at the low end mm-hmm. the best possible rate we offer. It will vary depending on the individual customer, but even considering the range, one thing we definitely aren't is more expensive than conventional products. If anything, we're slightly cheaper or on a par across the board. Fantastic. What about you, Arif? Because you have a budgeting app, being able to manage your money, and then also a savings angle to to the app. But how do you differentiate yourselves from the likes of the Revolut? Yeah, I I think with us it's been twofold. One is really understanding where Muslims feel left out mm-hmm. when it comes to their banking solutions. But again, focusing on what that problem is. When we started Kestrel, we made the assumption that people needed debit cards. We'll just make a Muslim version of Monzo. We've said that before, mm-hmm. but it's a popular term. Um, but when we spoke to people about it, there's 1,500 um, people that we interviewed. It, it wasn't top of the priority. It wasn't even something they thought about. They were very happy using their Monzo card, Barclays, whatever it was, because for them, the idea of fractional reserve banking, even money in your current account is being lent out and used to generate interest. Most people don't even know that's happening. Yeah. So it wasn't for them a, a, a real issue. The top issues that kept coming up were home financing, student loans, and how to grow your wealth, halal savings and, and investment options. Um, so th- those were top of the, the top of the range things. The thing that we chose to focus on was we would love to have gone for home financing, but capital was, was always the issue for us. So we thought, okay, what is the cheapest thing that we can build to start rapidly iterating and testing um, that would allow us to test our hypothesis? So that came with open banking. Open banking is this amazing regulation that we have here in the UK where every bank has to have its uh, data, transaction data of its customers publicly available to anyone that a customer chooses to provide that data to. So at Kestrel, what that means is you can plug in whatever bank account you have, Monzo, Barclays, Starling, straight into Kestrel, see all your transactions in one place. We take that information and use it to build a financial picture of who you are, create a better budget to help you to save better effectively. Then you can save into distinct pots of money, but ultimately the idea is growing it. Mm -hmm. So where we're headed to now is allowing you to link those savings pots with halal savings options offered by existing Islamic banks in the market who have excellent rates, but the majority of Muslims are not using them due to poor digital services and outreach. So our real aim in the UK is to provide the first fully digital halal savings account in the UK, which doesn't really exist um, at the moment. So that, that's what we're aiming for with the UK. Over in Malaysia, UAE, and, and other countries, we're really trying to help every Islamic bank to um, better reach and serve its customers, offering personalized uh, services to them. So everything that we can do or Monzo can do, allowing them to do that with their apps and lending that technology. So that's kind of the niche that we found ourselves in. It's If you'd asked me when we started this three years ago, what we'd be doing, it would definitely not have been this. Uh, but Alhamdulillah, that's kind of where we've found ourselves in this niche. As far as I know, there aren't many other Islamic institutions leveraging open banking. And certainly not many that I know, minted excluded, um, who are doing B2C and a B2B offering at the same time. Fantastic. And I mean, the Kestrel app is something I love using. So you oh, done well. But one of the key things to note here, ladies and gentlemen, it's, the, it's the, the ability to be nimble, to be flexible, and to sometimes change your initial strategy along your founder journey. There's no start and end. It's a constant evolution. Yeah. Now, Shahid, tell us about some strategies that you have 
changes that you've had to make in order to stand out from the rest of the crowd? Yes, sure. So um, a point I touched upon earlier, which was that the gold market was not that mature when digitalization. So it allowed us, you know, that extra um, breathing space and scope to be able to build in some USPs. Um, so what we found were the main ones uh, was the inconvenience of once you've bought gold to convert it back into fiat and cash. Um, uh, and so one of the first things that we did was we said, if, if you buy gold from us, we will instantly buy it back from you um, and, and deposit cash back into your account. Um, and, and that just allows gold to be a very um, easy in, easy out type of investment, which is not the case when you buy it in physical form traditionally. Um, and then on top of that, it's what we found was people um, struggled to with the concept of where to store their gold. Um, so once you've bought gold, then you then you know typically have to take out a safety deposit box at the bank or make some provisions um, to, to so that obviously adds to the cost um, and then negates any uh, upturn um, that you expect from buying gold in the first place. Uh, so what we did was we offered free storage and free insurance um, to our customers. Uh, and again, so we just really decided, you know, what we wanted to do was relieve all of the pain points when it comes to owning physical gold and silver um, and do that through a, a digital platform. Um, and that really did set us apart. Fantastic. With Islamic finance deeply rooted in Sharia principles, it's super important that in this modern world, the types of products and services that are offered are true to those Sharia principles. Innovation needs to complement tradition and it should not compromise it. Let's hear from these founders how they have balanced this, how they have balanced innovation, technology, and tradition. Shahid, I'm going to pick it up with you first. Are there specific challenges that you've encountered whilst introducing the cutting edge technology that you have um, with adhering to Sharia? Sure. So in essence, Minted, uh, although we didn't set out just to serve, um, just to be Sharia compliant and serve the, just the Muslim market, um, we did obviously want to cater for that because in essence, you know, buying physical gold is uh, Sharia compliant. Um, so, although we digitalized the transaction, um, we did have some challenges whereby, you know, Sharia, Sharia compliance in itself is a, you know, you have different differing matters of opinion um, that you'd have to hit by. Um, so, it sometimes can be challenging to, to all of them. So, one of the key ones that actually um, we, you know, we, we had a challenge with was um, there is there is obviously some uh, thought that believes um, in order for a gold transaction to be Sharia compliant, it must be hand to hand. Um, and obviously, being a digital platform, we, we cannot um, you know that's 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 not possible. So although we pass the Sharia compliance in essence, you know, we, we transfer ownership at point of transaction. Um, However, you know, we did have um, we did have queries that it still cannot be um, cannot be put down as Sharia compliant because it's not a hand to hand transaction. So those are the kind of challenges that that you, know, you do have, and, and like you said, innovation 
can bring those challenges uh, forward. Uh, but you know, that's um, yeah, matters of opinion, and and you have to just conform to that. Okay, how about yourself? Yeah, so we're an interesting one because there's nothing too controversial about the way that Kessler's business model works on the consumer side. We leverage open banking, we pull in the data, the money that we hold is not being lent out, so we used to generate interest in any way. Um, so that part was okay. One thing that comes to mind is uh, something our Sharia scholar, Matthew Faraz Adam from Amana Advisors always says, which is, Rather than seeing Sharia as a tick box exercise and just a means of compliance, bring in Sharia advisors into the strategy meetings to make sure that your product, uh, your solution is Sharia compliant from start to finish. So Sharia powered as opposed to just Sharia compliant, which we really like. So Muthi Faraz Adam is a core part of our strategy discussions. He stays on top of what we're doing and, and the products that we're actually putting out there. So the idea is everything from procedures to policies to the product itself is built with the idea of, of Sharia in mind. Um, the one thing that did come up recently where we had to, it gave us some pause for thought was recently non-Islamic banks have been reaching out to us. Non-Islamic banks who are just more interested in appealing to Muslim customers. Uh, we did a, an amazing event with Barclays um, recently, so we've been in discussions on things around that. Um, HSBC have launched their own Sharia-compliant funds, so they've been talking to us about hosting those. Um, and a large American bank has reached out around constructing Sharia-compliant portfolios. So we had to think, how do we want to engage with these non-traditionally Islamic banks? Do we, do we even want to? Um, the route that we've gone down is as long as they're serving Muslim customers, we would love to better help them to fulfill our ultimate mission, which is to help Muslims who want to grow their wealth. And the, the fact of the matter is that Muslims, the vast majority of them, are using these solutions already. So if we can lead them on that journey towards the path of Sharia, then we would love to, to do that. Um, my, my end goal for, for Kestrel, where inshallah one day we can perhaps get to and then hand it over and someone else can, can do, do what they will with it in a Sharia compliant way is um, if we can convince one of these these big conventional banks here in the UK or somewhere else to go back into Islamic finance. We had HSBC Amana, Lloyd's had its its own Islamic group and for a variety of reasons they pulled out just over 10 years ago. If we can convince one of them to open up an Islamic window again, I think that's it, right? Because we will have proven um, proven that there is real demand for this product, that Muslims are willing to put their money where their mouth is and fully go for Sharia compliant finance once again. Absolutely. And it only takes a ripple to make that wave. So it's great. Now, Rosa, when, it, when we think of home finance, there are a lot of complexities with terms and conditions, fees, and it's not so much the technology, but more how do you communicate that to your customers and make sure that they understand it? How have you gone about making sure that all of that marketing, all of those kind of documents that are provided to customers are Sharia compliant, but also easy to understand? Yeah, thank you. So really good questions. One of the things I'm really lucky to have at Fiverr is two co-founders who complement my skill set really well. So I'm a mathematician. I originally came up with the sort of the product idea and the innovation behind it. But I very quickly brought on Sheikh Salman Hassan, who's one of my co-founders. He heads up legal, uh, but also Sharia. Now, Salman uh, is quite unique in that 
he is uh, academically academically qualified both in English law as well as in Sharia. And that's a very, very rare skill set to find. Um, so if, if you find many Sharia scholars who opine on uh, English financial contracts who understand Sharia really well, but they're not necessarily uh, you know, well, well educated in finance or English law. Um, and so they're put in a very difficult position. They have to opine on very complex uh, financial contracts even though it may not necessarily be their exact skill set. So we're very, very lucky to have someone. And then alongside that, my other co-founder, Omar, or as I said, he's our CTO. So between us, you've got the, the sort of mathematician. Uh, I came up with the algorithms and the idea and the innovation. You've got the lawyer who also specializes in Sharia. And you've got the tech guy. And between us, we, we pretty much have the exact right skills to, to pull a company like this together. So... In terms of how we uh, communicate things to customers, well, we've got an amazing legal team who comb over uh, all of those terms and conditions and documentation. Uh, we've obviously got a marketing team and a compliance team who make sure that we go through due process before putting things out. Um, in terms of how the innovation is Sharia compliant, you know, I like to think that the Islamic banks and the products they provide I like to think of them as Islamic finance version 1.0. Okay. So, you know, they paved the way for Islamic finance in the UK. And we mustn't forget how much work they've done to start leveling the play, playing field for uh, Islamic providers in the UK, Islamic finance providers. It's still not a level playing field. There's still a long way to go, but we'd be way further behind if it wasn't for the work the Islamic banks had done. Frankly, if it wasn't for them, uh, innovative solutions like Fiverr couldn't exist. We'd just never be able to get to market. So I like to think of those products as version 1.0. Now, version 1.0 is never going to be the finished product. So uh, I like to think of our product as the next iteration in uh, Islamic finance. When I uh, came back from Hajj all those years ago and ended my role, I sat and just started to think about what are the uh, residual issues, the residual gray areas of the existing Islamic finance products today. Um, and from a pure common sense perspective, I came up with a product to try and come over those issues. Uh, I'll let you know the secret that when I started this journey, I had never read a single text on Islamic finance. So I wasn't by any means uh, an expert in Islamic finance. Even now, I don't consider myself to be. I'm very lucky I've got Chef Salman for that. Um, so I just took a pure common sense approach and I said, right, what is unfair or not equal in the existing products today, in conventional products, and in some finance products, what could be construed in that way? How do we go about fixing it? And rather than starting with the solution and trying to work backwards, I started ground up and I just developed a brand new solution based on the principles of partnership, based on the principles of equal risk sharing, based on the principles of flexibility and transparency and empowerment. And that was how uh, you know, we ultimately got to the product that we have today, I then had almost code that all up into our tech. I had Chef Salman review it to make sure it's watertight from a legal and Sharia perspective. And that was how we got to a product that's not only innovative, not only tech tech powered, but also 100% Sharia compliant. Fantastic. And I'm super happy that you mentioned you're not an expert in Islamic finance because the next segment is going to be a pop quiz. And I am being cheeky because you did have you had no idea about this. So 
There's not much time to brush up on your knowledge. <laughs> We're going to start with Shahid on the hot seat. So are you ready, Shahid, for your first quiz question? All right. Now, what Islamic finance instrument is often referred to as the Islamic equivalent of a conventional bond? Bond. Um, that would be uh, Sabuk. Well done. All right, Arif, you're on the hot seat now. Okay. What Islamic finance contract involves the sale of goods at a marked up price where the buyer pays in installments? Uh, commodity Morocco? Yes. All right. Oh, you guys are doing so well. All right. <laughs> on to you, Reza. What Islamic finance principle emphasizes certainty and clarity in terms and conditions of a contract? ensuring there is no ambiguity. Uh, so I think you're referring to the fact there shouldn't be excess khara, yes. which is uncertainty. Yes. Well done. Okay, one last question to see who the winner is, because we do need a winner today. So whoever knows the answer, just shout it out. Okay. Okay. First one's voice I hear is the winner. If it's in Islamic finance, what is the term for profit and loss sharing? Where investors, I'm going to hide this as well so they cannot read the answer. Where investors and entrepreneurs share the risks Shaka. and rewards of a business venture. Is it Mushalaka? So, no. <laughs> Sorry? Is that Madara? Yes. Yeah. There you go. Well, Shahid, well done. You are the winner. <laughs> <laughs> Now, startups and businesses operating within the Islamic finance ecosystem looking to be Sharia compliant have very specific and unique challenges that they face when it comes to funding. It is not an equal level playing field. How have you guys gone about securing the funding for your businesses? What were the specific nuances that you had to think about in order to attract the right type of investor. Raza, can you tell us about the challenges you faced? Perhaps there weren't any, but what was it like? Yeah, so for me as a very vision-led founder, and you know, this being a very vision-led business, uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't possible for me to accept bringing on an investor who doesn't share that vision, who uh, would potentially be taking a large chunk of equity in the business and then trying to pull it in a slightly different direction. So for that reason, I was very, very wary uh, when raising capital about who to speak to. And I spoke to various different types of investors. For me, the right route ended up being actually raising capital through private networks. Mm -hmm. So fortunately for us, we actually uh, were post-revenue. We were uh, slightly profitable by the time we decided to raise capital for the very first time. That meant we already had a customer base. And given what we're doing is quite revolutionary, quite different, our customer base, particularly at that time, was fiercely loyal and tribal to us and really bought into the vision. And so what we ended up doing was saying, well, you know, we could go to a venture fund and give them a chunk of equity. And uh, if it works out, that would be great for the venture fund. But actually, you know, Fiverr or Primary Finance, as it was known at that time, was built by the people for the people. And when I say that, what I mean is actually the reason we, we were able to survive so long without raising capital is because 
we had people lending us their skills and services and talents to get this thing off the ground. Uh, we, let, we literally had, if I take Umar as an example, my CTO, one of my co-founders, he was leading a team of five developers in their evenings and weekends with full-time jobs on the side. Those were their full-time jobs. This is what they were doing on the side. They were build, building out our tech for us on their evenings and weekends completely voluntarily over the course of two years. Uh, and that's just one of the stories I can recount of the community building Fiverr. So what I decided was, you know, Fiverr was built by the community. It should be for the community and it should uplift the community. And so we actually ended up going back to our very network of people who had bought into Fiverr. We had to obviously identify the ones who were, uh, it was appropriate for us to reach out to and connect to. Uh, but after doing that exercise, we said to them, look, we want you to be the owners of Fiverr because Fiverr should be here to serve your needs and desires, not the needs and desires of some venture fund or some uh, ultra high net worth or some family office. And so that was actually how we ended up raising capital uh, back in 2020, or back in 2020 for the very first time. And that uh, went exceptionally well for us. We subscribed our round in literally two days uh, by doing it in that way. Uh, and we ended up oversubscribing over the course of the week. Um, we then had another funding round just earlier this year. We took the exact same approach. We decided, okay, we're, we're looking to raise a lot more capital this time. So we might have to have an allocation for our community, our private networks, uh, and another allocation for VC or institutions, because we're not sure we can raise all of it uh, in that way again. And it ended up being, again, the allocation we had for our private investors was fully taken up in two days. And we ended up actually subscribing the whole round through our private networks uh, in the end. So we, we've managed to, I, I mean, this is the thing I'm proudest about with Fiverr. We've managed to keep it so, so pure for the people. And that is our strap line, Fiverr for the people. Uh, Fiverr means benefit, as you probably know, uh, in many different languages. And it's about bringing benefit for the people. And how do you ensure you're always working for the benefit of the people? Well, you make sure the people own Fiverr. Yeah. That's beautiful. It's like grassroot funding. Absolutely. I remember when I think it was the first round and it came up, the window to invest was closing and I was just messaging on LinkedIn, like, keep it open, paydays, like five days away. <laughs> but it was good, good times. And Arib, well, how about yourself? How was the funding journey for you? Yeah, it's, it's been an interesting one. Um, any fintech is quite a capital intensive activity. We did as much as we could off our own backs mm -hmm. early on, but uh, we quite naively thought, oh, we'll throw together a pitch deck and pull together a quick demo and then people will throw money at us. And we <laughs> sent the pitch decks out to all the major VCs, uh, which were out there, probably a hundred, didn't hear back from any of them at those early days. But Alhamdulillah, we, we were going out and speaking at different conferences. We went to a, uh, uh, a big Islamic finance conference in Turkey. We did the same at IFN and we started to meet individuals who were in and around the Islamic banking sector. Mm -hmm. For example, Sultan Chowdhury, the former CEO, and somebody who helped set up Islamic Bank of Britain or Rayan mm -hmm. Bank, as it's known today. And he, along with some some other angel investors, as you call them, helped bankroll us in, in the early days, um, doing our first funding round, which was enough for us to go full time. So we've leveraged angel investors. We've also experimented with, um, with crowdfunding. So we did a round on Cedars. Okay. The, the um, well-known crowdfunding uh, investment platform. 
which was great because it, it allowed us to get instant early adopters who were also bought into the company. So that was fantastic. Oversubscribed very, very quickly within a week, and we kept it open um, for a little bit there. So we raised uh, a, a nice amount of money there, which allowed us to keep going. But then what was interesting was we started to see, for me, it was all about acceleration. How far can we get, how fast can we get somewhere um, for us to really make an impact? Because I think in Islamic finance, there's a little bit of a, uh, a bad reputation where there's a lot of talk around all the changes people are going to be making, but very little actual action going on. So I was really, really conscious of falling into that trap. I hope we haven't. Maybe we have a little bit. <laughs> that's, uh, that's just the way it goes. So I wanted to try and get some VC funding. So there was a fantastic VC slash accelerator called Textiles here in London, which is kind of like a Y Combinator over in Silicon Valley. Uh, and it was run by a great guy called Salim Chowdhury. And I, we were at a point where VCs were still very hesitant into looking into us because they saw Islamic fintech and they immediately thought it's cool, but it's a bit of a niche, which is crazy because there's, you know, nearly 2 billion Muslims on the planet. So how could this be a niche? But it's still that that's how they would look at us. Um, and we were revenue making, we were cash flow positive, and that still wasn't enough for, for, for these guys and Salim. You know, alhamdulillah, we met him because he saw us, immediately got it. He was a Muslim himself. So he said, join the accelerator, take this money, use it. He made sure the deal was completely structured in a, in a Sharia-compliant way, which it wasn't done for, for others as well. So that was a huge, huge help for us. As soon as we had tech stars, suddenly opportunities started coming in from, from conventional VCs in the US, in Europe, and in the UAE. Um, but we, we thought back about what we had done with Cedars and leveraging the community and getting people involved. And there were interesting people in the community who were starting to focus on Muslims and helping them to invest. One of them is Islamic finance gurus through Curate Capital, and the other one is Wahid Invest through Wahid X. So we approached both, we went with Wahid X, um, and Alhamdulillah was fantastic. We launched our campaign with Wahid X, it was sold out in just a, just a couple of days. We extended it for a little bit longer. They took us on a tour around the country in their London office in Birmingham and Manchester, which was amazing, you know, talking about Kestrel in different parts of the UK. And then you realize what a bubble London is, right? <laughs> because you go to places where, like we assume everyone's heard of Bonzo and Starlink and Revolut. It's really not the case when you get outside of London, let alone Islamic fintechs, yeah. right? So it was amazing meeting them and people who are now part of our cap table. Who are opening doors for us in, in all kinds of places. So yeah, we, we've, when it comes to fundraising, we've gone down a few different paths. Um, I think my favorite is definitely leveraging the community yeah. for sure. Yeah. And I like what you said about investors that have opened doors for you. Because yeah. that is key. You want someone who's championing you, investing in you, but also opens doors. So Shahid, how's your experience been with fundraising have you had the benefit of having investors that have opened up more doors for your expansion activities yeah no absolutely i think uh it's been you know, being quite fortunate um i bootstrapped the business early on um and then i think to, uh, a year and a half into the business i um i was just casually speaking to a few friends who were visiting the uk um, and as it happened, you know, they came from the tech sector, um, fintech sector, finance, banking, and also precious metals. Um, uh, they liked the idea, they validated the idea. Um, 
and yeah, they, they've invested in us ever since. To be honest, we've not had to raise from outside, um, so it's it's been uh, not a conventional startup funding journey, but definitely not been uh, been blessed. Alhamdulillah for all of your journeys. Now, empowering their community is the cornerstone of ethical and sustainable finance, and it, it forms a large part of Islamic finance, especially for Muslims and the way we conduct our lives and the way we manage our money. It's also important for your companies to do things for your communities. Can you give some examples of how you've served communities, either through your company or through your personal lives and other endeavors? I'll start with you, Shahid, actually. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, we, we every Ramadan, you know, we, we tend to run uh, campaigns which are, you know, which have charitable calls attached to them. Um, so, so we did one last year uh, with the National Bukhart Foundation uh, where, you know, we were um, sacrificing our profit from the, the gold purchase um, and, and, turn, and turning it into a donation. Um, so yes, I mean, you know, we always try to try to get involved and help wherever we can, uh, and even personally for myself, um, you know, charity is very close to my heart. So uh, I love to volunteer and contribute towards, um, you know, contributing my skills and weaknesses towards uh, charitable organisations. Wonderful, Eddie. How about yourself? Yeah, similar with National Scarf Foundation. We've partnered with them every year since we've been live. Um, we we host them on our app. We built. The first, as far as I know, the first open banking enabled cigar calculator. So plug in your, your bank accounts and we'll auto calculate what your cigar is and donate that over to National Cigar Foundation here in the UK. So that was something we were really pleased to do last Ramadan, alhamdulillah. Um, and uh, yeah, we're looking to look forward to continuing our partnership there. On the other side of things, we've been really trying to help benefit the Muslim tech community. So we're speaking with organizations, bodies like Muslimic Makers about uh, helping the Muslim tech professionals in this country and beyond find and place them in jobs and also doing events with them. Over in Malaysia, where most of Kestrel is based actually, we're setting up community events there, bringing together the tech communities and seeing whether they can do large hackathons, not just for the benefit of their private organizations, but for public community facing initiatives as well. That's wonderful work. And how about yourself, Liz? So for us, uh, one thing we're super keen to do is uh, educate the community, uh, particularly because finance is an area that so many people shy away from, and that's people from all backgrounds, whether they be uh, taxi drivers, teachers, businessmen, doctors, lawyers. Finance seems to be an area that uh, very few people know much about. So one thing we do... Uh, quite like doing is uh, going and hosting events uh, up and down the country where we'll bring together people and we'll just educate them on finance uh, with a focus on home buying because that's something that's uh, very dear to us uh, and also actually it's quite a hot topic as Arid mentioned earlier on from the surveying that they've done. So we like to explain just how a mortgage works. Right. You'd be surprised how few people actually understand what a mortgage is. And then we go through how the Islamic Bank mortgage works. We go through our product. We go through shared ownership products. We go through savings and investment products. And generally, we find that these events are very well attended and the feedback tends to be uh, really, really good. Uh, and that's something we really, really enjoy doing. 
not going there to promote ourselves necessarily, just going there to actually educate the community, which we feel is very, very important. The other thing we really, really like doing, and it sounds like Kestrel are doing the same, is actually looking after the next generation and uh, uh, providing them the skill sets to take over from us. So we love actually bringing on board interns and work experience students and just getting them into the world of finance and just uh, you know the working world. Uh, particularly uh, from the Muslim community, what we found, a lot of young Muslim girls are too afraid to enter the working world because they're not comfortable with the working environment. And that's one thing which we uh, can provide a very, very comfortable, safe setting, uh, particularly for young Muslim girls. Actually, funnily enough, you've probably seen in the office, they're slightly outnumbered. You know, there's, <laughs> I think there's more, uh, significantly more girls than, than guys in the office at the moment. But that's absolutely fine. I, I, I'm very proud of that fact because I think they're providing a service and we need to do that. Absolutely. Wonderful. Now, the last part of our segment is the future and what the vision holds for Islamic finance. In 10 years' time, where do you think the industry will be? So Islamic finance, I think, is still relatively embryonic. On a global basis, very embryonic. Um, but in the UK, it's been embryonic for the last five to 10 years, right? It right. sort of got somewhere and then it stagnated for a bit. And now it feels like with the advent of Islamic fintech, it's hopefully starting to pick up again. I certainly do see Islamic fintechs being that driving force to take Islamic finance to the next level in the UK. I think the UK is a thriving, thriving Islamic fintech uh, community. Uh, I think most of the Islamic fintechs in the UK know each other quite well. We like to think we get on reasonably well. Uh, I like to think we're all thinking about collaboration and how we can work together, even if we haven't necessarily cracked it just yet. Yeah. And I think in the next 10 years, you're going to see uh, serious collaboration, hopefully much sooner than that. But I think that's going to be the norm in the next 10 years, serious collaboration between the major Islamic fintechs, the ones that have managed to get past startup, get to scale, and actually really start making a dent in the economy. And there are other Islamic fintechs hub in the world, obviously, Malaysia, yeah. Middle East, and right. places like that. And I'd like to think that then that starts becoming a global phenomenon in the world. Slowly but surely. What's the vision like for you? What do you see? No, I'd echo that. I think in 10 years' time, if we as a community have done our jobs right, I want to eradicate the notion that if you go for an Islamic finance solution, you're going for something that costs more or has a poorer quality of yeah. experience, right? I want to completely destroy that idea. And I think we're starting to get there. There's a, a huge community of young people who are starting to see this area as something really exciting. And there's a lot of innovation and, and just energy coming into the sector. So I want to get rid of that idea. Um, I would love to see the conventional financial institutions starting to take us seriously. If we can convince them to open up Islamic windows again, that would be game changing. In, in my, I know a lot of people have different ideas of that, but I, I think one step at a time, getting them to, to take Islamic finance seriously would be huge. And then finally, Islamic finance ultimately is ethical finance, right? I think it's a, in some respects a, a branding issue, but there are a lot of benefits to Islamic finance where uh, the likes of ESG fall flat and have fallen foul of, of greenwashing. I think the next step then is once we have cemented ourselves and proven that Muslims really want Islamic finance and are going to vote with their wallets and, and go with these these products, the next is then 
I think, a rebranding exercise and making Islamic finance ethical finance and showing how it can ultimately benefit the community as a whole. Absolutely. And Shahid, what are your views? What do you foresee? Yeah, no, I think some valuable comments from the guys, and I, I really do echo that as well. Um, I, I just think you know, the more we can support uh, Islamic fintechs, the more we can see uh, and have success stories uh, in the sector. Um, that will that will obviously improve the reputation and also attract more people towards the sector. And then, and as you said, we've we've got you know immensely bright minds, um, and uh, who, who sometimes just don't have the the launch pad. So you know, uh, a type of incubator service would be uh, or in, incubate platform would be fantastic mm -hmm. just to allow people to um, you know test test their ideas and, and and really grow. So yeah, no, but I think I think as as Arif says. Ethical finance, we'll see more and more uh, coming into the fore. Uh, in particular, you know, we, we have uh, huge advancements like decentralization um, as well, which, you know, uh, blockchain decentralization, which I, I really do think these um, really do uh, conform with uh, Islamic principles. So, um, yeah, the, I, I think the future is bright when it comes to uh, the Islamic context. The future is definitely bright. I want to thank you all for joining me today. Now, before we wrap up, you've given us a side of yourselves as the founder. What are you like as a person? So this question is going to be a fun one. And I'm going to ask each of you the same question. I'll start with you, Shahid. In a parallel universe where you did not pursue a career as a founder or an entrepreneur, what career path might have you taken? I think I think for myself, um, I would have been a tennis player. I, I think there's no wow. in saying that. I have a go now, but uh, but yeah, I would have fully focused on it. Nice. How about you, Marie? Uh So I I, I love animals, especially um, uh, big cats, tigers. My dream, maybe when this is all over, is to do wildlife documentaries. So go out there and. and you know, film animals on the brink of extinction. And, and, you know, I was really inspired by people like Steve Irwin, Crocodile Hunter, and Steve Bakshaw. Um, so, yeah, that was really cool. My degree was in physics with a focus on astrophysics. So that was really interesting wow. as well. Um, but, yeah, I think way more so the, the wildlife documentary filmmaking thing. Definitely. How about you, Rosa? What would you be? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to say that I'd be working in charity and doing lots of uh, exciting charitable projects, but the truth is I'm a lot more boring than that, and I would have carried on being an actor. And you, <laughs> back at PwC as an actor. 100%. I would, have, I would have just carried on doing the same. Uh, funnily enough, when I gave up my career, charity crossed my mind, and I thought, right, maybe that, that's what I should focus on, and I just realised it's not my call anymore. Um, so I'm a mathematician through and through. I love spreadsheets that's where i live <laughs> that's what i do <laughs> wonderful as we conclude we're left with a sense of admiration and also inspiration hearing from Areeb, reza and shahid they're really paving the way towards a more inclusive financial future for all of us we've had raw discussions they've told us about the challenges they've had pivotal moments in their lives, and we also know what their secret passions are. Thank you for joining us. Now, if you have enjoyed the voice of La Riva, please do subscribe. 
if you're watching on YouTube, hit that bell notification. And all of this would not be possible without OpenCube. If you're interested in learning more about OpenCube, then do check out the website, OpenQ 